Hey, what's going on? My name is Lee Hopkins. My pronouns are he, him, his, and you're listening to the Patterns of Possibility podcast. I'm so glad that you're back for another episode. You waited three whole weeks for this episode <laughs> because I did not publish anything for the last two weeks. And well, you know, there's really no great reason for that, but I appreciate that you still came back to listen to my interview here. So I have an interview for you today. I interviewed another hypnotherapist and this guy, Steve, unlike the last guy, um, Doug, I knew him before our interview. And still, it was very surprising to learn some new things about him and, and how he became a hypnotherapist. I found our conversation intriguing because not only does he have a coaching background with hypnotherapy, he also has a professional medical background as a nurse. You've waited so long that I don't have to ask this time. I'm sure you're ready. Let's go. Today, I have a guest for you. So, Steve, can you tell us who you are, what you do, and why you do it? Again, I'm Steve Cohen. I'm a registered nurse, and I have a history of hypnotherapy, and also I've worked as an occupational therapist. I've worked with helping people with effective workplace stress management and also stress management themselves. And I started out as an occupational therapist, and from occupational therapist, I worked with kids and I noticed, started noticing patterns of what were making changes in the kids that I worked with. The kids I worked with were all disabled, mentally and physically disabled. So I started working with them and noticed how we could create patterns for them to make changes to improve their life. And I went from being an occupational therapist into a registered nurse. And when I became a registered nurse, I discovered that those same patterns that work with kids, trying to redevelop those, actually worked with adults also. When we're children, we basically have a blank slate. And as we grow into adulthood, we start filling things into our minds. So some of the patterns that a kid might have, even in their home, might be things that keep them from moving forward. So if a kid is labeled as being disabled and they believe that they're disabled, they may never get past that pattern of patterns of being disabled, of not being able to do things. And what I would do with kids is make them teach them through habit formation how to start doing things differently so when you say you know you teach them a couple things like what are some of the things that you've seen like you know people will label disabled well uh, for instance as i had one student his name was eric and i was always told that eric you need to put him in a chair a wheelchair type appliance and wheel him out into the garage. The garage is where they had the lunchroom. And what I started to doing with Eric is I knew Eric liked to eat because whenever the food was around, he'd actually start salivating, almost like a Pavlov dog. You know, it was really wow. interesting <laughs> because he he knew food is what he loved. And he would sometimes go and reach over into where there was food into you know another place that there was. So I knew right there that he had the physical, the ability to go after something that he wanted. So food was the thing that we decided to grow the, the pattern on. 
So what I started doing with Eric is I started taking him out of the chair and letting him crawl into this little garage where they had food. And we got him down to doing that. And then what I, after he got that down fairly well, I started grabbing him by the back of his pant loop and I would stand him up, even though I was told that he doesn't walk and slowly just started every single day using food as the motivation to get him to walk to the, to the garage to where the food was at. So he, we started developing patterns that he knew garage meant food and he knew crawling to the garage meant food. Then he knew, you know, standing up and walking to the garage meant food. So I kept progressing his patterns to start doing more things. In the, in the school that I work with though, they thought it was because they had changed medications with him, but the only thing that they had done in regard to medications is they actually decreased his medications, which made it easier for me to work with him because then he didn't have side effects from medications that we had to work through. Wow, that is a quite a remarkable story about this kid. How old was this guy? Eric Eric was between eight and ten at the time. Oh, okay. When I when I when I inherited him, but so, so at eight years, there's quite a few patterns that are already put into his mind that he, you have to kind of work out of those. But I don't get rid of them. I actually add on to them. What do you mean by add on to them? How did you add on to it in this case? Well, instead of, you know, I could be with him, you know, doing what everybody else did, you know, yelling, Eric, get off the floor, Eric, 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 Eric. But I never did that because the thing is, I thought that it affected his sensory input. So instead what I would do is I would start building the new patterns. So as you build new patterns, what it does is it erases old things that you do. When you start getting out of a pattern and be put into another pattern, you start doing different things. So that's what I did is I started doing things that other people weren't doing. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like Eric was conditioned physically and verbally to stay in a chair right. and be wheeled along, wheeled along and everyone around him believed that that's just the way life should be. Eric, you're going to get in the chair, don't crawl until you come along and you say, well, maybe not, maybe not so much the chair. There's other things that can happen here. And it's because you've had some observation, really paying attention to the kid, essentially, like saying, hey, I know what motivates you and I'm going to challenge you. That's exactly it. And if you keep a child in a chair their whole life, or you keep somebody in a hospital bed their whole life, what you're doing is you're cutting down their longevity. They're not going to live as long. They're going to end up getting you know, respiratory problems, circulatory problems. So I knew that to increase Eric's longevity, to increase Eric's abilities and capabilities, we needed to make a change. So when you um, got into this business, uh, what was the motivation for you? The motivation for me is, you know, when I was young, I was always told by my father that you can do whatever you want to do. And for some reason, so here I'm talking about kids getting something planted as they as their mind is being filled. I this was told to me when I was very young. So in my mind, I believe that because I was told that when I was young, you know, there's there's no ends to what you're able to do. So what it did, it fulfilled me because I was able to say, see, that's right. You can do it. If you can see it and you can believe it, you can do it. So it, for me, it just it made me feel good to actually see progress in somebody else. Okay. Yeah. I mean, this inspiration from your, your parents, your family, has really gotten you motivated to help other people. So then you could have done anything. 
you could have helped people in different ways. You could, like your dad just said, you can do anything. Why this? Well, you know, you're absolutely right. Like you, I could have been anything. And there's so many paths in life. I could have taken any one of the paths. This just happened to be the path that I fell into. I, I decided when I was young, I wanted to be a physical therapist except the problem I ran into is neither of my parents ever went to college. And when I first went to college, I showed up at school downstate of Illinois. I showed up at school and said, I want to become a physical therapist. And they said, well, um, have you signed up for the physical therapy program? Have you been accepted into it? I'm like, no, you have to be accepted into it. They said, yeah. I said, well, where do I sign up? And they said, there's a one year wait. Well, now I'm at a college in downstate and I have no place to go. But while I was down there, I guess I just followed what I needed to do is because my mother called up and said, you know, there's an occupational therapy program in in the Rehab Institute of Chicago. Do you want to go there? And I'm like, oh, occupational therapy, physical therapy. They sound the same. Okay, I'll do it. I just did it out of ignorance and I just fell into it. And sometimes once I left occupational therapy to go into nursing, it's just that I took what I learned before and just kept moving forward, 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 forward. It was just, for me, just a natural progression. Okay. So you basically got some skills and you just built upon those skills. So you said an occupational therapist, then you went into uh, nursing, which is, right. you know, you're just taking your skill set and you're challenging yourself, pushing it to the next level. Right. So I want to step back, though, and ask you, what is downstate? What are you talking about? I was in Carbondale, Carbondale, Southern oh. Illinois University. Oh, okay. So, uh, where are you? Where are you now? I'm in Batavia. I'm right outside of Aurora, Illinois. Okay, everybody. He's in Illinois, <laughs> somewhere, somewhere in the north, uh, north of Chicago. Correct. West of Chicago. <laughs> west of Chicago. Right. All right. I'm, so I'm 60 miles west of downtown Chicago. All right. I appreciate that you're not saying that you're from Chicago because people in the suburbs tend to do that. Oh, <laughs> I'm in Chicago. Um, so I did want to step back and ask about this physical therapist thing, because I have to tell you, it feels unusual to me that you would pick a physical therapist. And I say that because when people, you said you were young, you decided you want to be a physical therapist. But when young people just kind of pick a job, they're like, oh, I want to be a doctor. And they don't really refine exactly what that looks like. And I'm imagining that you thought you wanted to be a physical therapist when you were like 13, 12, 13, and just kind of pursued that. Well, why did that idea come to you anyway? When I, when I graduated, or when, not when I graduated, when I came into high school, I decided I wanted to be a runner. I was very small. I was... I was only 5'2". I was very small compared to all the people who want to be runners. And during trials for running, I made it through the first practice of running. So I, I wasn't guaranteed a position on the running team. But during the weekend between the second tryout, I actually was playing football and I hurt my knee. And when I hurt my knee, I was told that they didn't want me to be running. They wanted me to put weights on my ankle because I had done some damage to my knee. So when I went to high school, I couldn't go to regular gym classes because I had a knee injury. I, I just couldn't do the things that they wanted me to do. So they put me into a program that was called special ed. 
and special ed program was you, you, you were in a gym, but the people who were in your gym were people who had cerebral palsy. The people who were in your gym were people who had mental difficulties. So you sat in the class and actually had gym with people who physically and emotionally could not do anything. And in that gym class, I realized that there was a way to work with some of these people, even in this gym class of maybe 10 people, that you could make a change in some of these people who some would just sit in wheelchairs and do nothing all the time. And so I started getting them to participate. And then I found out there's, there's actually a job that does that, and it was called physical therapy. So going from being injured, so the adversity into utilizing it to learn to do something that you could do with people, not only myself, but kids who have adversity. So that's how it started, how I got into physical therapy and found out about it. Oh, okay. So you had your own experience, which your personal experience, which drew you in because, wow, you were injured from right. football? Uh, now playing, playing football, yeah. I was playing football. I, I jumped up to catch a pass, and when I came down, my brand new cleats dug into the earth, and I was stuck there in one place while everybody tackled me, and I couldn't move. So you said that you were playing football for your your just, team, or for your? This was just for, for recreation over the weekend. Oh, okay. With some with some buddies. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Just wanted to make sure I understood because yeah. it sounded like you were playing football and running track, and I'm like, wait a minute. I mean, those are always those special experiences that we have that that drives us forward. And it seems like it really made an impact on you because you were in this group where everybody was labeled as something that, you know, they could have been more than, and you wanted to motivate them to be that. Right. So what are some of the kind of uh, things that you developed when you were there? You said there was emotional and physical. How did you connect with the people? You know what? I, I just connected with them. You know, I, I realized that when, People just sit and they don't move. They never move. So the one thing that I did learn in that class is there's such thing as passive range of motion, which means somebody comes and pushes you around or somebody takes your arm and they, they flex it for you or flex your fingers. But passive range of motion in your life, not only to your extremities, they actually do nothing for you. All they do is keep you from getting tightened, keep you from getting older or or but active range of motion, what it taught me is to actually have people do something, you know, move, they themselves need to move their arms. They themselves have to push their wheelchair if they can, while they're sitting and if they themselves have to grab a ball and throw it, it's the active range of motion, the movement that taught me, you know, and throughout life, you have to continue to keep moving. People doing things for you do not make you better. They just make you more sedate, make you want to do nothing more. And just be. You saw them do the passive range of emotion Correct. and discovered that being active about it is more beneficial. And so you just have a kind of a mantra to life with that. I think you, it sounds like you took that experience. You look at the passive and the active and you're just like, well, I always I see this passiveness here, there and everywhere, starting to see it a lot more. And so you want to activate that. Right. So that came with physical therapy. So how did this occupational therapy, like you said that you fell into occupational therapy, well, what's the difference between the two? 
physical therapy is rehabbing someone more as a whole body. So if somebody has like a leg injury, usually you'll have physical therapy. Um, occupational therapy is for somebody who can do basically occupations. And when I say occupations, they can possibly go back to work. I, as an occupational therapist, I work with people with more fine motor, you know, using your hands. So they could go back to work. They could go home and cook. They could go home and, you know, they could screw a screwdriver. Usually the physical therapist didn't do that. They worked more with the broad muscles, you know, with moving your, your, your shoulder, you know, swinging your arm around in a circle. That's physical therapy. But the fine motor of grabbing something with your fingertips, to me, was occupational therapy. Okay. So then once you picked up this occupational therapy, like how did your life change? You started this journey and there's something must have changed for you to just go into nursing. You're a person who likes to challenge yourself, but was it really just something that fell into your lap? It unfortunately fell into my lap because what had happened is we had a new president coming in and I worked for a private school where Eric was at. And the new president who was coming in, who I really felt was going to become the president, and he actually did, he talked about cutting funds for private schools. And when he talked about that, I thought to myself, if he, cut, if he cuts me out of this school, something that I love, I'm going, you know, what's the possibility of finding something else? So I thought to myself, I need to find something else, something else that I can fall back on, something else that'll keep me moving forward. And so I started looking at, you know, what works with range of motion, what works with physical therapy, and what works with increasing, moving people forward. And I looked at nursing. So I decided that I was going to become a rehab nurse. And so that's how I ended up going into nursing, because I found that title rehab nurse for people who had strokes, people who had gunshot wounds, people who had injuries to rehab people, but as a nurse. So it's a bit like physical therapy, but like, what's the difference between the two? Well, with physical therapy, it was getting people to move forward, you know, getting them to move. When I became a nurse, I wasn't doing rehab anymore. I was having rehab people come to the unit that I was on and start working with them. But as a nurse, what I was actually starting to do was mindset. They also included medication. And as a nurse, which was different than occupational therapy, I was doing what I call a head-to-toe assessment. So I would look at someone and I'd go from their head and assess them all the way down to their feet and seeing, you know, is there something in their shoulder that's keeping them from moving their hand? Is there something that they're thinking that's keeping them from moving forward into doing something else? So I, I got a better and a broader approach to assessing people for success. Okay. So do you basically where I wouldn't say like a doctor, but I mean, you did the head and toe thing. I, I know that nurses do more than doctors. And I mean, they spend more time with their patients and they get to know their patients a lot more, I think, because they're doing, they have that kind of intimacy where they're doing a lot of things for them. Like you're doing mind setting. And that's interesting to me because I'd not thought about a, a nurse looking at someone's mindset. And I know sometimes nurses will, I've heard stories about nurses like they will come in and they'll cheer you up. I've had that happen to me. It's like, hey, how are you doing today? But not a, a breakdown of my mindset and where I am. So what do those sessions look like? And why, why have you decided to do that? I wanted to do something unique. I wanted to do something again. I think it fell back to, I wanted to get people to move forward. So how did you make that happen? Like if I was sitting here and I needed rehab and you were, I'm a patient, what does that look like? 
Well, so I, I can only give you an example through like another person I had. So I had a woman who was just about 35 years old, 5'2". She weighed about 250 pounds, 285 pounds, and she had a stroke. So she was on my rehab floor. And people would do, would come in and say, okay, you know what, Mrs., you know, Maria, just every hour go in and, you know, move her arm around, move her arm around and make sure you roll her side to side. You don't want her to have bed sores. You know, she's had this stroke and, you know, Dr. So-and-so has said, you know, they expect that she's going to probably live only a month. But me being a nurse and also having that feedback as being an occupational therapist, I went and I said, to the other people on the floor, I said, has anybody asked, you know, Maria what she wants? And people are like, Steve, she doesn't talk. She had a stroke. You know, she's drooling. Well, the thing is, I've worked with drooling before, and I've worked with people who had weaknesses before. So I said, you know what? Come in the room. I said, I want to show you something, and I bet you, you don't know this. And I went up to Maria, and I said, Maria, are you here? And she said, nothing. And everybody kind of like snickered, like, Steve, you know, you're a moron. And the thing is, I so I said to her, I said, Maria, I know you're here, but no one else realizes you're here. I want you to do me this favor. If I ask you a question and your answer is yes, I want you to blink once, real tight. But if your answer is no, I want you to blink quickly with two blinks. And I said, so is your name Joanne? She blinked twice. So she knew the word no. I asked her another question, is your name Maria? She closed her eyes tight. And people are like, how are you doing that? I'm like, because she is not dead. You don't understand. She's still here. So then I started working with her and I said, Maria, you have two hands. I want you to take your thumb, one of your thumbs, and I want you to move it. Well, Maria, of course, didn't move a thumb at all. But someone looked, they're like, oh, my God, look at that. Her finger is quivering. Her thumb is quivering. Well, the thing is, it told me that Maria still had feelings she had some control. So here she's laying in bed before I see her, and she has a lack of control. All people do is roll her over, passive range of motion, move her arms back and forth. So every day I would have somebody work with her at least one hour, moving a thumb. And then once she'd get moving a thumb, then we'd work on moving another finger. And before you knew it, we had her moving a hand. Now it comes down to it's being you know, two months down the line, three months down the line through physical therapy an occupational therapy that's working with her, they're getting to get her to sit on the side of the bed and to walk with a walker. I just never stopped believing, you know, what can happen. And so what I did is the difference is being a, a nurse is I went and I did a head to toe assessment on Maria and looked at to see what it is that she had and what she didn't have. And I started working with what she did have to start moving her forward. So as, as a nurse, the head to toe assessment was the big thing because I was able to assess areas that were weak and areas that were stronger that I could work with. That's a remarkable story. It takes a lot of effort and energy to put into it. A lot of people were just kind of writing it off and looking at the situation, thinking, well, they've seen this before and they know how it's going to turn out. But you also said, I've seen this before and I also know how it could turn out. And that, But it took a, a lot of you know, guts and, I don't know, willpower to push back now I know you because you've had your experiences with it so what was that that like to have to convince them you you said that you know it was difficult and it just seemed like you won them over right away was it that easy it actually in in that instant it was it was fairly easy you know it's like you, someone goes to a magic show and all of a sudden someone makes a card or a coin disappear in the air 
And so you believe it's real. So what I really did is I was working as the magician, so to speak, to say, because they didn't believe me initially. They're like, how did you do that? The thing is because I knew what had happened. And when, and when you see something happen, you're like, oh my God, you can do that. They can do that. So you get other people to believe when they see, they see result to, to an action. You know, if you read it, yeah, I was just going to say, if you read a book and it tells you about something, you're like, oh, okay, that's interesting. But if you see someone actually do it, you're just like, wow, that does work. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I, I believe that too. And it, I mean, it's, it's just true, right? There's, a, mm-hmm. there's an experience that you have that really, really helps more so than reading about the experience. If you have the emotion really invoked in you, you're going to remember it a lot more. You're going to feel it. You're going to absorb it a lot more. Sure, you can read about it in the book. You were so interested in this because you've had an experience where you were hurt and now you're just kind of going, but taking that pattern that you saw, that you've seen something completely different than other people. Actually, the opposite where we can do act, we can be active in these situations. It doesn't mean it's the end. It doesn't mean that things are over. You just have to apply active range of motion rather than passive range of motion. Right. And just look at it another way. Sometimes you have to take a step back and just look at it another way because there's solutions aren't always one. Solutions sometimes are many to get to a final solution or goal. Of course, it takes um, a whole team and lots of journey. Um, I want a cute, don't stop believing. That's it. We talked about how you've come into this position as a nurse. And as a nurse, you were focusing a bit on mindset, a lot of mindset, because it seems like that is the key to making the difference, making changes. It does. It, mindset works. The other thing that works is other people who have similar mindset to you. Some people who have similar beliefs, they might not have the belief in what it is that you're doing, but they believe in you. And so when people believe in you, you really can make a difference when you have an, an audience or, or a group that, that are there. How did you find people around you? Like, uh, did you have a bunch of people around you supporting you? You know, I unfortunately was not a big, uh, I didn't work with a lot of groups. When I was young, I grew up actually in a box, so to speak. My father was very big on family events, which took me away from social events. You know, spending time with family was very important. So he spent every moment spending time together. I mean, we'd sometimes go places. Not that my father spent the time with me, but we were together in the same locale. So I was used to doing things on my own, even though I was with my my family. So when you say with your family, you mean just your immediate family? Do you not have any uh, siblings? I do. I do have I do have siblings, but when you take if you take six people and you put them in one room and they spend all the time together and you have no other outside influences, then you grow up believing everything that you hear between those six people. So if, if you lived in your house and your next door neighbor was the only person you talked to, and that was the only input you got, you'd think, well, that's, that's life. What they're telling you is life because they're the only person that you have who are life. So I grew up believing whatever my parents told me was truth, which I learned was not, you know, once I, I lived on my own. 
Yeah, we always find that out. Like when yeah. our kids were like, "Oh, parents, they know everything." Well, because they got so many more years on us, and they've been right. here, you know. So we're like, "Well, yeah, well, it sounds like um, the moon is made of cheese." Wow, it's I didn't right. know that. And then you go out there and you find out you can't eat that. <laughs> right? Yeah. There's there's always there's parent life, and then there's family life, and then there's social life. So when you get exposed to social life, you realize, "Wow, this is really different." But of course, when I was became social got into social life i would tell everybody else that they were wrong because i always believed parent life was the way it was but i didn't know that they're you know so i think it's kind of implicit but can you tell us what the difference is between this family social and parent life is well when as i was saying earlier you know when you're small you have a blank slate when you're when, when you're a child and things start being put into your mind and when you spend time with just one group of people. So it could be your family or it could be, you know, you're a teenager and you stay with the same group of teens who are on the same mindset or same beliefs. When those things are put into your mind, that's actually what I call more of like a family, uh, a parent mindset, because you believe what what's being told to you, because that's the only input that you're getting is from those specific people. And as you get more social, as you are a teen, that's more like a family or a, a social group. You're learning a little bit more, but whatever they believe, since you have no previous experience with them, you believe now that's the truth. And then all of a sudden you become an adult, you know, you're 18 years old or 20 years old or 22 or 25 and you're out on your own and you have all these beliefs that you think are real, you know, you, whatever they may be that your parents have told you, your friends have told you, and then you realize, you know what, and you try and pee the, put those onto other people and they're like, are you, that's not the truth. And you're like, yeah, it is. My, my mother told me or all oh, the guys from the gang told me it. it's not true. So then it's more like I call social truth. You know, you learn, become more rounded. And as you go through life, of course, you do get that as you meet more people and interact with more people. So it's the the parent is the parent's beliefs that they're sharing with you and your family is what you grow up into. That it, that includes your siblings and probably your aunts and uncles and you know the people right. within your family that you have traditions and things like that, um, like believing in Santa Claus, something like Correct. that. Correct. And then you have the social, um, where you have your own experiences. You're going to go out in the world and you'll see that these are your experiences that you've seen with other people that aren't your family, that aren't the people that you grew up with, and you develop new beliefs from that. Right. Yeah. When I, when I was in my early twenties, when I was first on my own or my late teens, I was first on my own, I go out and I date people and they're just like, what, what are you talking about? And I'm like, yeah, that's the truth. You guys, you don't know anything. And we'd have these arguments because I thought what I was given when I had my blank slate was actually true. Of course. But then I didn't realize that my own parents sometimes didn't even go out of their own box to interact with people to find out you know, what other information is available. They were just working off their information. Sometimes they were working off their own parents' information that was provided to them. And they believed that was true because they, of course, they had a trust in their parents. I do have to ask you, what were some of those things that you've, the things that you'd argue about? Like, this isn't true. I believed it was true all my life. What happened? You know, I that seemed like a hundred years ago. I can't even pin down specifically what it was. I thought when you when you're with somebody in your life that they're not they're not my my parents were very close they did everything together 
So one thing that I grew up thinking is, oh, when you have a mate or someone who you're dating or someone who you're with, they never go anywhere without you. That's what my belief was, that they they weren't allowed a life. Their life was you. Well, of course. But I had to learn that 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 was not the truth. I had to learn that people had to go, that just because you loved red doesn't mean somebody else loves red. Just because you like to play football doesn't mean someone else likes to play football. People have their own lives. And that was, that was the biggest thing that I learned, or, you know, once I was out on my own, that people have their own life. It's not you, but they do enjoy things about you that they like spending time with you. But it's not, everything is not about you. Yeah. But that's what, you know, I grew up, as I said, my parents were, they were doting with each other. You know, they loved spending things together and that's. They just always did stuff together. Yeah. They always did. Together. I mean, if you grew up seeing that, then of course you would believe that's how the world works, you know? That's why, you know, a, like, a, you're not the only person, of course, who has discovered, you know, their parents and what they do and what they believe doesn't fit them, doesn't fit them in their experiences. And they shed that when they go out into the world and they say, you know, I want to have my own experiences and see if that works for me. And doing that, you discover a lot more about you know, who you are and what you want and you can differentiate yourself a lot more from your parents or see your parents in you a lot more however that works out for you so then you said people discovered you discovered one of the big discovery was that you had discovered people have their own lives and do their own things so how did that play out with you when you were connecting with other people like how did you did you notice that you were um in conflict with other people or connecting with other people more easily? Like the people who had your similar view, views and values when you were younger, like maybe they believed that you should all be together. Did you run into any people like that who thought that they should be just as close as your parents? Um, there were a few, but for some reason, those people were not people that, I mean, even though I met them and they greeted them and I spent some time with them, they weren't people that were, fit with what I was doing because I kept wanting to progress and do more things and do, you know, more things in my career and my life and my studies. And those were people who were people who I would say were stuck in the box, you know, you know, we're, we're together, we're comfortable, we're spending time, we've got each other, but I wanted to do more than just spending time, you know, with each other. I mean, I wanted to be out motorcycling or biking and, and the people that I was connecting to weren't, doing things that I wanted to do. So okay, yeah. I separate them. So so I want I want to just, you know, between like the ages of 20 and 30, most everything I did, I did on my own and I was very argumentative with people saying this is the way, you know, things has things have to be, but it wasn't again, it wasn't the truth. It was the way I saw it because I just had lack of experiences with social skills. You know, I think one of the things I grew up with was similar to you. Like in my relationships, I always believe that there is always an imbalance. I think where the man does this and the woman does that. So I'm supposed to provide and that's what keeps me, that's what keeps me around. It keeps me useful. Otherwise I'm not useful. And so I had to create that kind of dynamic and you know, that doesn't never worked out. That was never true. Didn't help anything. So that was something that I saw and I thought, well, 
this is how it should be. And I would attract people who kind of fit in that realm with me, that role with me. And it was, it was a, a rewiring to learn that some kind of provider financially, that wasn't the case. I have a different role that I like, but it's not about being imbalanced. And so that's one of the things I learned that I had to, to deal with. And so these kind of conversations about some of my beliefs would come up. Um, I do remember being staunchly religious in college. And uh, it's so I'm such a completely different from that now. I've come a long way from it. So holding on to these beliefs that were given to me, I would share them with other people and say, you're a bad person because the Bible tells you are, because <laughs> the Bible says you are. Right. And I would do stuff like that. And it was a big turnoff, of course. So that would create conflict for me, discovering that my values weren't everyone's right. and coming around being justified and sharing my values. I'm like, <laughs> so you've had those same experiences and these beliefs that you held on to. Have you completely just shed those beliefs? Well, my beliefs are different than that because everybody is an individual. Everybody, you know, I, I've had people, in my, I had a twin sisters in, in my clinic once, and they came in and said, you know what, we do everything together since we were young. We played tennis together. We went to school together. We went that together. You know, we did this, that together. And the amazing thing about them is when I talked with them one-on-one, -on -one, they weren't exactly the same, even though they believed they were. So in regards to myself, I realize we all are individual. We, we see things that are we like about someone. Some of them are similar. Some of them are things that we can't do, but we like someone because they can do it. So they fill a gap for us. So it's different. Whereas before I say, okay, you need to be exactly like I am. You know, when I, when I do my right step, I need you to step right also. When I do left, you step left. But there is one thing, though, when I grew up that I never made it. I couldn't understand is my parents' roles with each other because my mother was a housewife and my father was a salesperson. And I remember when I was young, I even asked my mother, I'm like, how come you're not out working? How come you don't go out and work? Not to say, you know, you do nothing. I'm like, how come dad doesn't come home and wash the clothes? How come he's not picking his own socks off the floor? So that's one thing, even when I was young, I, I always questioned is why there wasn't equality, you know, between between sexes. And in my neighborhood, we had a lot of people like that where, you know, mom stayed at home, dad, dad worked. But as I got older, again, I, I realized that people are individuals, you know, nobody thinks exactly like you do. They have different thoughts than you do. Um, mm -hmm. And they enjoy the things that they enjoy that are similar, but they also enjoy some of the things that are different. Because, yeah. you know, you, you can do for them in that area where they can't do for themselves. Wow. So it sounds like you were just naturally curious about other things and other people. And it, it seems like you had a curious mind from the beginning where you're asking questions about why things are the way they are. You would look at something and maybe not accept the situation, analyze it and see, well, maybe this is true or not, or try to figure it out at the very least. And when you're a kid, you just get the information that's given to you. Hey, this is ask mom, mom has the answer. Okay, I accept it. You might not have the cognitive ability to go and, and look at other um, experiences, 
mainly because you don't have many because you're a kid. And then you start growing into this and you're, as you step into the world, it seems like you're saying, well, there's a possibility here. You can walk to the garage. You don't need to get in your chair, Eric. Um, here's a possibility here. Maria, you can blink your eyes um, to communicate. See everybody, this is what's happening. And it seems like you are just expanding on that idea going forward with other people, just bigger groups of people. You work with uh, healthcare professionals and you work with just regular individuals in this mindset thing. This is where the, the mindset comes from in hypnosis, right? Right. You, you, see, you see the possibilities. You know, sometimes I, I even say to people, I'll invite them over and say, can we talk for a little while because I need another brain? Because what to me sounds logical to someone else may be illogical. Something that I see as a possibility, you know, they may say, well, you know, maybe you can't do that. But I'd say, okay, if I can't do that, what can I do? What would you do with that? Because I, I don't want to have just a, a no answer. I want to say, okay, what do you see from your brain? Because that's why I want to talk to you. I need another brain. To do to do that, so I'm always looking and just you know exploring, you know what's next, and I'm always looking at possibilities because that's what I want people to do with me is tell me what are the possibilities that you see from from my situation. So yeah, I am I am inquisitive because I look at people and say you know there's a possibility you could do this then the other. If they ask me, I tell them. If they don't ask me, I don't. I say nothing. Yeah, that's good. Um, unwarranted advice, you know that is something that will push people away from you if you're telling mm -hmm. them. And that's probably something that you've mentioned in your experiences where you're argumentative. And you, I'm guessing that you discovered telling people doesn't help. Correct, it doesn't. Yeah. Unless people ask you specifically. Or if you go up to someone and say, you know what, I see someone, can I be honest with you what I see? And so I'll ask somebody if someone goes, well, no, I'm, I'm fine. Then I just let it go. Yeah. Instead of asking people and instead of just telling people, you've decided to be a hypnotherapist so you could hypnotize people into, into dumping your ideas and thoughts of, of empowerment into them. It's, what happened there? How did you become a hypnotherapist? Well, you know, that's interesting. Is I, I was seeing patients at home and I was asked to go see a patient in Barrington, Illinois, an area that's kind of a little bit exclusive, a little bit, you know, people have a little bit more money in that area. And I was asked to go see a patient who had, uh, they didn't tell me what I was seeing him for, which was very unusual, because you always got an idea of what you saw patients for. This man wasn't. And I got to his house, knocked on his door, his wife answered the door and said, you know, uh, what do you want? And I said, I'm here to see your husband. And she goes, well, no, we didn't ask for you to be here. And I said, I know, but I was asked to come here to do an assessment. So it turned out this man had been in the hospital. He had prostate cancer, highly curable. They told him he was 80 years old at the time. Um, so they decided, he decided with the advice of the doctors to go in and have his radiation, his chemotherapy, and, you know, rid himself of the prostate cancer. And you know what? They were successful in doing that. But here's the thing that they weren't successful with is doing the radiation. When they radiated his, his prostate, they actually burned his bowel. And when they burned his bowel, they couldn't correct it. Now, I have to also go off that information that the patients tell me, not the hospital, but he's telling me that they couldn't correct it and told him there was nothing to do. And so here's this 80-year-old man telling me, you know, I went into the hospital at 184 pounds, and I weigh 118 pounds now, and they're telling me there's nothing I can do. And I said, so what does that mean? nothing you can do. They're like, 
while they tell me that I have two weeks left. And so this is where the hypnotherapy started coming in. As I said to him, I said, you know, I want to tell you, I don't believe you have two weeks left. And he said to me, he goes, what do you mean? You don't think I mean you're going to make it two weeks? And I said, oh, no, no, no. I said, I think you're going to make it further than two weeks. He goes, well, how would you know that? You're not a doctor. I'm like, I know I'm not a doctor. But I said, just imagine this. I said, have you ever been on a body of water? Have you ever been at the beach or on a, on a raft? Have you ever? He goes, oh, yeah. He goes, I've actually canoed down the Mississippi. And I said, so imagine this. Close your eyes and imagine this. I said, you're on the Mississippi and you're canoeing down the Mississippi. And all of a sudden you see a little branch that goes off to the left. And you decide you're going to go off to the left onto that branch. So you start canoeing down that branch, but all of a sudden you notice that the water has stopped flowing. And you can't figure out why is the water not continuing to flow down this branch. And you come up to this area where there's actually a whole tree has fallen across that branch of the river and has stopped the water from flowing. Now, after a while, the water starts building up behind this tree that's sitting across it. And when enough water comes, it forces the tree to move just enough for the water to rush past. But once the water rushes past, the tree just rebounds back to where it was at and stops, stops fluid from moving. I said, that's what's happening to you. You have a tree somewhere in your system that's keeping everything from going through. Because he was, he was going to the bathroom maybe every five to six days. And when he did, he'd have explosive everything that came out of him. So I said, that's what ha that's happened to you. What you have to do is you have to start eating. This is now part of nursing. You have to start moving. That's the, that's the occupational therapist in me. I said, you have to sit on the end of the bed. You need to, we need to work with you on walking to the bathroom. And you have to believe that you have a river that has a blockage. But the way to move that blockage is to start getting sediment in. And the way you get sediment in is that's food, a little bit of food here, a little bit of food there. But the way that this whole track works is you actually have to also move. So I was taking everything that I learned to work with this man to teach him that he was not going to die. And when I walked out the door, I said, by the way, I said, have a good life. I said, I, I'm sorry that you're going to die in two weeks. And he said to me, he goes, but wait, 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 wait. You told me that I wasn't going to die. I said, yeah, but are you going to believe me? Are you going to believe you? Are you going to believe the doctor? Well, it turned out I worked with him for three months. And I can't tell you this man became perfect, but he was able to go up to the bathroom. He was able to get control over his body. And the next year, he finally passed away. And what he passed away from was heart failure at 81 years old. And we believe that the heart failure was related to his chemotherapy that he got the year before when I saw him. So it's just bringing everything together. That's where I started with hypnotherapy. And we got such a good response. I thought, you know what? I have to do that again. Um, I, I want to do this again with somebody else. And, you know, I worked, the next person I worked with actually was, was somebody who was a Chicago celebrity at that time and uh we got a fairly good response for him too just increased his longevity got him to live a little bit better life with what the life he was that had left so that's how i started is, is just started working slow and started working with people and using their imagination their visualization working with the things that they believed in to be better all right. So then that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it feels like a very natural progression into being a hypnotherapist. So then what does it take to become a hypnotherapist? That, and you've had a lot of experience 
setting mindsets for people, helping them see that they can do something new and different, breaking old patterns. So what has happened? Like, how did you become, how did you become a hypnotherapist? I became a hypnotherapist because I went and I, as I said, when I was probably in my early 17s, 18, 19, 20, I never listened because I knew it all. And when I started learning that, you know what, I have to start listening. I started listening even more than I was before. I just made it an effort to start listening. And to be a great hypnotherapist, I shouldn't say a great hypnotherapist, but being a, an effective hypnotherapist is really listening. You know, you don't go and tell people, as we were just saying, you don't tell people what it is that you believe and you're going to make that change. You find out what it is specifically that they want to change and you work on that change. So if you tell me, if someone were to come to me and they say, I want to, they come in and say, I want to lose weight. So you say to them, okay, I'm going to help you lose weight. But in their mind, they say, I don't want to be fat. I don't say to them, you know what, we're going to work on having you lose weight. We're going to work on you not being fat. And my, most people say, what do you mean you're calling him fat? But he calls himself fat. And if he accepts being called fat, then you know what? We're going to work on him not being fat, not working with him being losing weight because that's what he wants to work on. So it's listening very well, feeding back to the person what it is that they want to hear. And what they hear is what they tell me. And then just start working with that and just gradually using occupational therapy, physical therapy principles to get them to start moving. It doesn't matter if it's stress, anxiety, weight, um, problems with swallowing. It has to do with moving, which is, again, it goes back to occupational therapy. So listening, yeah, making so, them move. But as far as becoming a hypnotherapist, there was a process for you to them become a, a nurse. There's a process for occupational therapy and physical therapy. What was the process to become a hypnotherapist? You know, for me, it was a, a, a unique experience because what I did is I read up on it, saw that patient in Barrington, utilized it, and I kept seeing people and I was utilizing what I was learning as I worked with each person, what was working and what was not. What an, with a, an, um, a hypnotist really can do if they want is they could go 40 hours to a school and learn to do hypnosis. But there's a difference between being someone who does hypnosis and somebody who does hypnotherapy. Somebody who does hypnosis can teach you to relax, can teach you how to decrease stress, but they can't always follow up with you to fruition. For the people that I see, they'll, I, get, I get people who say, I've already seen in the hypnotherapist. And in fact, they saw a hypnotist who went through a weekend course or a one-week course and, you know, reads books. But the thing is, you can do that. You can do that. And that's what I, I call that a recreational hypnotist. If you want to learn how to do hypnosis. And then you have to. Yeah, take of course. You I mean, experience is a lot like better than actually reading good, a book. We just discussed that about how, you know, your experiences really dictate right. a lot more, I think, than what you read in a book. Right. And I did have, you know, I did 
I have gone through hypnotherapy courses too, which which I would always tell people you need to you need to continue doing. But when I first the first course I ever went to, they said here is a written script for anybody who is having to lose weight, and I was like, great, that's going to work. That I kept that works. And then they gave me another one for someone who wanted who had stress. But what was so interesting is about this book is where the word weight was in the previous script, they had the word stress. So it was no different than one from the other. So I that's why I just learned to say, you know what, we need to see what else is going on because I can't tell you what to do. I need you to tell me what it is that you want to do. Um, whereas I, I meet some people sometimes and um, they're just reading from a book to people. Yes, um, a, definitely. I mean, it definitely script. makes it more powerful that you connect with your patients in a in several ways. I mean, physically, you have uh, the ability to not diagnosed, but you know a lot more than the average Joe because you are a nurse. So you can physically kind of connect that mind and body with them. You can see those links that many people can't who hasn't who have not had your kind of training. Then I really like that you like to use people's own language when they're talking about themselves. You allow them to self-identify. You know, I start the podcast off with my pronouns are he, him, his. And so, you know, if you have uncomfortable, if you're uncomfortable calling someone fat, but they say they're fat, then, well, why would you, I mean, you wouldn't, you would, you would disconnect with them if you decided to use whatever you decided to use to describe them, like using their own language is a surefire way to make a, a better and genuine, more sustaining connection. Right. So, yeah. So can you imagine a, a parent who, who goes and the child saying, I'm fat, I'm fat, I'm fat. And the parent says, Oh, you know, no, honey, you're not really fat. You know, you're just, you're just nicely plump. Well, the thing is, if I start thinking to myself that I'm not going to believe it because it's not true. If I believe that I'm fat, then, it, you know, my parents should say, yeah, you know what? You know, you're right. You are fat. What do you want to do about it? What do you want to change? Where do you see yourself, you know, next year, five years? If you make the change, what are you going to be able to do? Yeah. And it's, and it's, uh, it's validation, right? Even though, you know, the parents may be uncomfortable with saying the words, it's validation of the child's experience and how they see the world everybody wants to be validated and they want to have their their point of view understood whether if it's believed by one party or not other party or not they want that validation so when it comes from your parents it's especially more powerful and then you know it sounds like the kid would have an opportunity to not do anything about it if they didn't want to it's like on that and it's a statement I'm not trying to do anything about it right and the other thing is sometimes I get people come in and somebody who's significant in their life will, will have them come in. So it could be a spouse, it'll be a parent, it could be a child. And they'll say, you know, my, my whoever it is, you know, whoever sent them in said, you know, my father's off his rocker, you know. But, but the truth is, Lee, if you tell me you believe this and it's true to you, it's true. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. So if you believe that, you know, you're, your self-esteem is down and, you know, and it's because of this, that, and the other. Even if I think, boy, that's not the truth. You're beautiful. God, you're, you're such a handsome guy. You're such a beautiful woman. No, it doesn't matter what I believe. It's what they say. So whatever they say they believe is true, is true. 
even when people tell me about things that happened when they were kids, they'll say to me, well, this is what I happened when I was a kid. And even if they, if it really never happened when they were a kid, if they believe it happened in their mind, it happened. I'm not going to change that. Exactly. So that's not what hypnotherapists do, essentially. You know, change anyone's mind you kind of guide them to a new experience you can't just uh, like uh what are the things that hypnotherapists do like um they have those uh, swirly things or a metronome or a pocket watch you don't do that yeah. <laughs> no i i do i don't do that i i like people who come in with things that are unique like i i had a couple of weeks ago a woman come in who had swallowing problems so I asked her, I said, do you know when this started? She goes, I was sexually assaulted. Now, I think to myself, I don't say to her, let's go over the sexual assault. I go instead and say, you know what? Let's work on something that will make you have less difficulty with swallowing. And I said, what is something that you like to eat? So she went and said, whatever it was that she likes to eat. And I said, and how does that feel when you eat that? She's like, I like that. And so we started building on things that she liked. We didn't go back into the thing that caused her sexual assault that she had or sexual abuse that she had when she was younger. So the thing is, because it's that old saying, if someone says to you, don't think of a pink elephant, don't think of a pink elephant, don't think of a pink elephant, what do you think of? A pink elephant. A pink yes. elephant. Right. So, so I'm not going to say someone, okay, let's... Where, where a lot of people go to psychotherapies and go to counseling, like, let's talk about that. I don't, I, I don't have my people talk about that. You know, if, if they're with somebody who, has, who assaults them and screams at them and they're not the right person, the only thing we need to talk about is how to get you out of that situation. But we don't work, I don't work with hypnotherapy saying, okay, let's work on, you know, what happens when he yells at you? Let's, let's you know, remember, what does he say exactly when he yells? At you? I, I don't care about that. What I care about is, moving you forward, not moving you backwards and then moving you forward. Mm -hmm. Again, that's what the, I think the biggest difference between coaches and, and therapists are is that the therapists tend to look a lot more in the past and uh, they analyze it. So the coaches will like, all right, now you have your past. Great. But now let's see what we can do about your future. What is yeah. that you want going forward? Yeah. Yeah, let's stop talking about that. Let's stop talking about that. What is it that you want to do? Let's not talk about what you, you, you haven't been able to do. Let's do what you what you want to do and what is it that you can do. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree with you. Yeah. Well, Steve, thanks so much for sharing your stories with us. Um, as we wrap up here, do you have any words of wisdom or an exercise or, or something that you could share with the audience? You know, I'll give you one for people who have self-esteem or people who might have anger management. You know, you always do things because there's a benefit to doing it. You know, even feeling down, there's sometimes a benefit because people will, you know, maybe look, look down to you and help you out. Or anger management may be the same thing. You have anger management because you think, oh, maybe, you know, it'll improve my relationship. You know, if my wife listens to me or my husband listens to me or my kids listen to me. So those are things that you really want to do when you run into a place where you're having problems with self-esteem or even anger problems, what you want to do is you want to try and figure out what is specifically the reason that you're doing that. You know, what, what is the, what are you getting from it? And then what you need to do is write those things down. And then when you write those things down, 
you have to go and give yourself, I have the people who come in, I have them write out a 24 hour piece of paper and I have them write down all the things that they expect that get them angry or have gotten angry before and what to do if you hit that place where, you know, somebody angers you or something happens that angers you. And so when you first get to that place, I always tell people, imagine you just tell yourself and you recognize because you have your piece of paper to recognize it. Just say to yourself, stop. Don't say anything. Don't do anything. Don't act on your angry feelings because anger or even feeling down or self-esteem, it's an emotion and it's strong. But you can, if you can feel it, you can turn it into a different behavior. Then I just have people step back from the feeling. Look at, look at the anger. You can even give it a name, you know, whatever you want to call it. And just label it. Notice that it's strong. Be aware of how it's pushing you toward an action. Accept that it's pushing you toward whatever action it is. Because there's nothing wrong with feelings. There's nothing wrong with having emotions. It's just a signal that you're in pain. So the only problem is mm-hmm. when you act on it, sometimes if you act on anger or you act on feelings of whatever the feeling is, you end up hurting yourself or hurting someone else. Yeah, you'll get something, right. you'll get a result that doesn't really serve you. That's right. Yeah. Right. So, and if you do it, and it, and if you know that it's a habit of yours, because I, I call it a habit, um, that you keep doing the same thing over and over again, and all of a sudden you start recognizing it, then you can start changing. And that's what I do when people come in the office. We talk about how to change that different, it may be breathing patterns. It may be certain places, you know, to press on their head or their fingers that just releases some of that feeling of depression, self-esteem problem, anger, it may be. So that's a start to, to just recognize it. Dare I say turn a pattern to a new possibility. That's exactly, that's exactly because that's, that's one reason why I wanted to really be able to talk with you is because you are that you are patterns of possibilities. And that's exactly what I believe. It's about patterns of possibility. Yeah. I'm finding that a lot of the things I talk about with coaches are very similar. We have very similar mindsets and we call things differently, but there, there it is. So, Steve, it was really great for you to share your story, your history with us, how you got into this. I really appreciate you opening up. Can you tell us, tell them where they can find you if they want to learn more? If you want to learn more, you could go to www.medvestahypnosis.com. And Medvesta is M-E-D, which is short for medicine, because that's where I started. V-E-S-T-A, which is VESTA, which means investing. So it's investing in your medical health. So MedVesta, hypnosis, H-Y-P-N-O-S-I-S dot com. All right. Are you on any other social medias or? If you go into happyhealthcarepro.com, I work with groups of people and individuals with avoiding burnout, reducing their stress and increasing retention. You can also make an appointment or some time, 15 minutes, complimentary to you. We can work on a few things and start you moving on your path. Or at LinkedIn, you can go to www.linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash extreme fatigue and exhaustion. All one word, extreme fatigue and exhaustion. And on Twitter, you can just go to twitter.com forward slash 
at Vesta Health. Steve, thanks so much for coming on. It was really great to understand more about you and how you became the person you are today. Like what made you inspired to coach? I think that it is very important for people to have these experiences or share the experiences that they have to know that they understand what we're going through. They understand how they can help us. So I asked so many questions about who you are because your clients want to know who you are. Steve, thanks again for sharing. Everyone out there, I hope that you check out his website at medvesta.com, happyhealthcareprofessional.com, and everything else that I have there in the show notes for you. I'll see you next time. My name's Lee Hopkins. My pronouns are he, him, his, and you have been listening to the Patterns of Possibility podcast. If you want more content like this, please like, subscribe, and share. Follow me on Instagram. I go live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. Thanks for listening. Take care.